Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Hey, 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 welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and yes, I am your host, Rob Watson. We have another great show lined up for you today. Uh, last week, we took you into the world of rock and roll and uh, with one of the, the great rock producers um, and uh, told their story um, and, and were, you know, it was a fascinating story and, and an exciting world um, to hear about. Um, this week we are going to the other end of the uh, country because that was very new york based uh this week um our culture stop is going to be in san francisco and we are going to be talking about a new film called the unabridged mrs vera's daybook um it is by lgbtq cultural filmmaker robert james um it is a Wonderful film, documentary. Um, we'll get into more about it, but uh, it features two iconic San Franciscans, uh, David Falk and his partner, Michael Jones- Johnstone. Um, these guys are fixtures in the San Francisco area. Um, they are very visible every year at Pride. And in fact, I think it was in 2019 where the Grand Marshal or San Francisco Pride. Um, they go way back into the day. Um, they are survivors of the AIDS crisis, um, but it is their artistic expression. And um, we, I mean, for to short term it, we can call it drag, although we're going to talk to uh, Robert about that in terms of the art form that they project, which is, is drag-ish. Uh, but it's actually much more, and we're going to go into um, all of that. Um, but they were um, they they lived through the day, um, including uh, being instrumental in ACT UP. Um, they Michael in particular was instrumental in the Names Project. With the Names Project was the creation of the famous quilt that went to Washington D.C. and um, had had a huge impact there. But the uh, the film is charming and warm and um, just uh, really a wonderful exp- exploration of um, and taking us back to the day for those of us who lived in it that day, that uh, time period and um, the uh, I think Michael in the film even makes the point that it's for those who've forgotten that they lived through that period um, and I completely related to that. Uh, Robert's films, um, his other films that he's done are equally as fascinating um, and dig into specific individuals and characters and their uniqueness. Um, So we're going to talk to him about that as well and, um, you know, get to that very shortly. Um, Before, though, I do want to bring on Brody Levesque, Brody is the editor um, of the Los Angeles Blade magazine. Um, Los Angeles Blade is, first of all, it's an award-winning magazine. Um, it and its sister publication, the Washington Blade, 
uh, just won the coveted GLAD um, Award for Excellence in Journalism. So they've been recognized as the top journalistic outreach for LGBT media. But it is unique journalism. Um, it isn't pickup from just wire services. Um, and uh, unique perspective on everything LGBTQ. So you should be checking it out every single day. That is my point. But in any case, welcome to the show, Brody. How are you doing? I am doing good. Um, unfortunately, Donald Trump's not doing so good. He just left the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. He's on his way back to Reagan National Airport to get aboard his fancy 757 aircraft with his name on the fuselage with the gold-plated toilet. And he's retiring to Best Winster, his club there, because he just got indicted again by the U.S. Special Counsel for four counts directly related to the events that led to the insurrection of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol building. Uh, more or less, Trump is getting indicted for the big lie. And, of course, all the crap that goes with it. But I'm not going to cover that. Let's talk about LGBTQ community news, which I think is more important than Trump and his not-so-crap. Florida today, the Department of Education notified the College Board. This is a nonprofit organization that oversees the Advanced Placement Program, the SAT Suite, and the Big Future Programs for public and private high school students seeking to attend college that Florida will not allow public public school students to take the AP psychology uh, course uh, because it uh, includes lessons on sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, The Department of Education sent out a notice to the Superintendents Association that AP psychology classes must be scrubbed of its gender and human sexuality unit in order to continue being taught in Florida classrooms as lessons on sexual orientation and gender identity are topics that are forbidden by the state's new laws, uh, known colloquially as the Stop Woke Act and the Don't Say Gay, signed by Governor Ron DeSantis earlier this year. Essentially, the censorship of course content uh, will result in Florida students being denied the AP designation, and as a result, college credit earned for completing course. Uh, This move comes as the DeSantis administration is also doubling down on its white washing of American, African uh, American history and peddling lies about enslaved people benefiting from slavery, which Vice President Kamala Harris has traveled to the state of Florida twice now in the last week to address that issue. Um, The Orlando Sentinel, my colleagues down there, are reporting that the banning of the AP classes is taking place about a week before school starts in most of the districts. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of, you know, kids that are going to be um, negatively impacted uh, by this nonsense. Um, and that's, you know, again, in Florida, a little bit brighter news. Let's skip over to Austin, Texas. The American Civil Liberties Union of Texas has taken the state uh, into court, and they are suing uh, to have an injunction against Senate Bill 12. This is the ban against drag performances in the state of Texas. Uh, this was also a law that would potentially criminalize certain drag shows. ACLU and about four other advocates um, have now taken this uh, into court, uh, and we will have to wait and see what the U.S. District Judge does with it. Hopefully, uh, 
issue a preliminary injunction and then we can see something, you know, further down the road. While we're in courthouses, uh, the United States Circuit Court of Appeals for the Seventh U.S. Circuit uh, basically told the uh, state of uh, Indiana two school districts to go pound sand. These are both also ACLU lawsuits. This lawsuit found that these two school districts banning trans uh, kids uh, from bathrooms unless they were, you know, following their birth genders was unconstitutional. So the circuit court said, nah, you can't do that. Sorry. Uh, so that was kind of a victory for, you know, the trans community in the state um, of Indiana. Hopping the state over, another federal court in Ohio, um, basically kick out um, a lawsuit by a highly conservative Parents Defending Education organization. This is like a organized Moms for Liberty. This group had been speaking out against books in particular and LGBTQ rights in Ohio classrooms. Uh, in Columbus, U.S. District Court Judge Elijah Marbley, an Obama appointee, ruled over the weekend that the U.S. Constitution does not guarantee a right to bully trans kids in the state of Ohio and therefore the lawsuit that these parents defending education had launched uh, which would have overturned a policy protecting trans kids uh, in a local school district but it would have applied Ohio wide uh, was like unconstitutional sorry goodbye have a nice day um, in another federal court um, I got to admit I love these federal courts uh, there was a ruling that they are looking at another couple of pairs of drag bands, and apparently those are now under consideration uh, for also possibly uh, being uh, overturned or at least a preliminary injunction being issued. And then in Oklahoma, got to love Governor Stitt. So Oklahoma, Rob, already has on its books three locks this guy signed that specifically target Oklahoma transgender people. Okay, one of them uh, is a ban on health care, specifically aimed at the kids. Uh, Another law removes the ability to have your gender marker on your driver's license. And yet another law, you know, basically defines what you can and cannot do as a trans person in the state. As far as medical professionals are concerned. Um, And then uh, the, the other law that's got everybody going, of course, requires in public schools in the state of Oklahoma, all K through 12 students and public and charter schools to use restrooms and changing facilities again with the birth sex listed on their birth certificate. Well, the governor wasn't quite finished with that. So yesterday, Governor Stitt uh, signed an executive order, and this one requires virtually every state agency and board in the state of Oklahoma to define the words female and male to correspond with the person's sex assigned at birth. This executive order also includes definitions for the word man, boy, woman, girl, father, mother. The law, or the order, excuse me, it's not a law. The executive order specifically defines a female as a, quote, person whose biological reproductive system is designed to produce ova, and a male as a person whose biological reproductive system is designed to fertilize the ova of a female. So that's the executive order. You will note, okay, that the state's all about targeting trans people and laying out what females are supposed to be and males are supposed to be, yet Oklahoma also instituted a draconian ban 
on abortion rights in the state of Oklahoma, and one that's even got criminal provisions. So like most things with these Republicans, if we're going to issue a law, and this is what you're going to have to do, and yeah, we're men, you're women, go away. Oh, you're neither. You are an aberration to society, so we're going to specifically target you. And we'll do it any way we can. So Oklahoma now has become a very unfriendly place if you were a transgender person. Actually, even traveling through well, is ugly. Actually, it's, it's become an unfriendly place if you are a human person. I mean, that's, mm. that's all insane. So yeah. let, me, let me just recap. The, the leading contender for the Republican uh, presidential nomination is the thrice-indicted um, uh, potential criminal who is probably going to face a fourth indictment um, yep. who should not even qualify to vote, let alone run for office. The second in line for the Republican nomination is a fascist who is hell-bent on seeing his state's um, seniors not reaching higher education. And um, the rest of the conservative states um, just need to worry about federal courts that uh, are finding all their crap unconstitutional. So um, that's my takeaway there, Brody. That's pretty good uh, summation. Um, I also want to tell um, our listening audience out there, Rob wrote uh, an op-ed who's one of my best columnists at the Los Angeles play. Uh, he talks a little bit about an interview that was conducted a week and a half ago by uh, Morning Joe on MSNBC with actress Jamie Lee Curtis, who is the parent of a trans kid uh, named Ruby. Uh, Jamie is most assuredly out there in front uh, advocating and defending her kid. But uh, read read, uh, Rob's take on on the action with that. Uh, And then one last note, kind of on a sad note, and that, of course, is that um, we had an out-black dancer, O'Shea Sibley, uh, killed. He was actually murdered in uh, the borough of Brooklyn in New York. Um, This was an up-and-coming dancer, uh, in the world of uh, ballroom dancing and voguing. Uh, his mentor, uh, Kamar Jewell, is heartbroken. Uh, Kamar has been a guest on Rated LGBT Radio, so I would like to personally extend our condolences to Kamar on the loss of his uh, friend who um, was murdered as a direct result uh, of a hate crime. As of today, oh my God. Uh, I spoke earlier with the NYPD. They still have not arrested the teenage suspect in the stabbing death uh, of O'Shea. But uh, Beyonce uh, has put a shout out to O'Shea. Uh, He actually was dancing ironically to her music when the altercation occurred that resulted in his death. So uh, she shouted out to him. And again, to the ballroom and the voguing community uh, in New York and in the tri-state, uh, you have our abject condolences, and uh, we're very sorry for your loss. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, our our heartfelt felt condolences on that. Um, thank you, Brody, for your kind words on the article I wrote for you. Um, the one thing I do want to point out about that article is um, not only do I talk about Jamie Lee's um, stance for her trans daughter, but um, kind of why her brilliance in taking a stand 
is absolutely necessary. And um, I talk about another mother who missed her opportunity and the tragedy that, that happened as a result of that. So um, I do appreciate uh, the shout out and do please read it because not because I wrote it, um, but because it does bring up a really important issue and a really important aspect that I think people need to understand about the parents of trans kids and the choices they face. And they're often life and death. Um, and we need to defend them as rigorously as we do the trans kids themselves. So I wanted to pivot now to our guest, um, the LGBTQ uh, documentary and filmmaker, uh, Robert James. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Rob. And thanks, Brody, for that report. Um, I, you know, I, I came out in Florida. Florida was so queer back in the late 70s and early 80s. And I'm just shocked that uh, all of this is um, going on with uh, Governor DeSatan. And yeah, uh, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm horrified. I'm horrified for Florida. I've got relatives still there and they're shocked. And um, yeah, very, very tragic. Yeah, I think, I, I think it's being used. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a it's ironic uh, boomerang back to the Anita Bryant days, um, which obviously was, again, beating up the LGBTQ community in Florida. Um, specifically, um, and it, it, it seems like uh, Florida's got two worlds. It's the there's there's the queer world there, and then there's the completely anti-queer world and the mashup between the two. I know Florida also is the place that was not allowing um, gay adoptions for the longest time, and we had um, families down there who had kids out of foster care that they were raising and they weren't being allowed to adopt, which was insane. So, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it is not pretty. But, uh, Robert, your focus has been primarily bringing out the depth and culture and color and vibrancy of San Francisco specifically, um, even though you, you came from Florida. But I do want to – I've been dying – to turn this around on you, you know, it's like if I had a camera, I'd be flipping it your your way like you normally do to other people um, and asking you the question you started out the film with. Um, so what were you like as a kid? What was I like as a kid? I grew up in Illinois and, um, I, you know, I was a theatrical kid. My poor dad, who was a... Uh, High school basketball coach, you know, um, always, you know, shoved me into sports. And uh, I actually was pretty good at sports, uh, but I, I had no interest. You know, I wanted to play with the neighborhood girls and dolls and, you know, <laughs> lemonade stands and things like that. Um, so I kind of I felt for my dad. He ended up being a very loving and caring dad. But... Um, when I was very young, uh, it, it, it was difficult in central Illinois. I grew up in Decatur, Illinois, the soybean capital of the world. And, um, yeah, it was tough. But my mom, my parents divorced, and then my mom got a job in South Florida. 
So when I was 16 years old, I moved to the Fort Lauderdale area. And a couple of old queens that I knew in Decatur said, oh, honey, you know, you're going to the place. And uh, and I found that to be true. And it was um, it, it was a great time to be in South Florida in the late 70s, 1979, actually. Now, now you've done a lot, obviously, deep study of of San Francisco, pretty much starting around that time on. How did you see the culture different in the San Francisco lens versus your experience with the 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 great time in Florida? Well, yeah, um, it was a great time in Florida, but you know, I have to say this this project is really a way for me to give back. Um, I was bartending in gay bars when the AIDS crisis came out, uh, you know, began. And we were reading about it in our queer rags, you know. We were reading about this, you know, mysterious gay cancer, and we weren't paying attention. You know, New York and San Francisco were hit the hardest, and we were not paying attention. The backroom bars were still open. The bathhouses were still open. And we were just you know, kind of kind of dismissing it as, you know, something that won't come here. And, you know, I was, a, you know, I was a little disco queen back then, and I just did not pay attention. I didn't know anyone that um, transitioned in HIV uh, until the 1990s. I did not mm. get tested until the late 1990s. Uh, I... I moved to California in 1995, and um, I lived up in Sonoma County, up up near the wine country. And I would dip myself into San Francisco long enough to go to the Castro, you know, um, tour around a little bit, and then go back up to uh, Sonoma County. So I, I wasn't immersed, but uh, I. I had gotten clean and sober in 1991, and um, I lived a pretty pretty quiet life. I, but I, I do have to say that um, when I saw my two film subjects, you know, with the activism and the caretaking of their dying friends, it made me realize how uninvolved that I was. So this is really <laughs> a way for me to give back to a time that I was absent in the fight against HIV and AIDS. Well, that, um, that, that's really fascinating, I, I, and I'm relating on a lot of levels, although I would have to say watching the film, which I loved and I just kind of just loved sinking into, um, I was in L.A. at the time, and it was hit hard. Um, the attitude down there, we were kind of pissed off um, as it was hitting because everything we were being told fell right into what the right wing wanted us to be told, you know, it's like, and um, so I think there was a lot of denial over, you know, yeah, this is just very, very convenient, um, you know, that that uh, you're telling us to live this way. And just coincidentally, coincidentally they've been telling us, this for years and we don't want them to be right but it hit it hit hard down there in fact i related a lot to 
the uh, um, to David and Michael in the film. You know, Michael in particular having you know, there's a comment in the film how Michael went through several iterations of losing all his friends, and that that was certainly my story in L.A. And by the way, you and I have something in common. I got sober in 1982, so um, oh, nice. good on you. I, yeah, nice. yeah, kindred kindred spirits there. Um, Absolutely. But the um, there was so much wonderful commentary in the film and what these guys stood for in terms of and and your filmmaking, which was reminding people, first of all, letting people who weren't there know what it was like, particularly in San Francisco and particularly in their story, which that was the other thing I loved about the film was you didn't try to tell the story for everybody. It was very much very specific to them, which obviously other people who went through it can relate to, but didn't feel like, you know, no, no, that's not how it happened. It was like, it was just really a tough line to, to walk and you walked it so perfectly. Um, but uh, it, it also, the thing that was brought out in the film was it was also for people who were there or were in similar circumstances, but hadn't remembered. And that's kind of what it did for me was, was help me remember things and of that time that, you know, we've uh, decades ago long moved past, but um, it is good to remember and not remembering the tragedy, which that is sort of ever present, but remembering the beauty and the art and the creativity and the great souls that were lost. Um, so anyway, kudos to you in, in having created that environment how how did you come to that in your filmmaking i have to thought about that up front rather than it just simply evolving as you turn the camera on well it's interesting that you ask because um i had done a deep dive in san francisco uh history and research for another project uh, one of the interview subjects for a forthcoming project that I've been working on for about 10 years um, is Don Francis. Don Francis, who Randy Schultz's book um, and the band played on was about Don. Don's the one that left uh, the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta when the Reagan administration um, was ignoring the AIDS crisis. And he came out to San Francisco where you know, it was it was a battleground of, of of you know people you know dying right and left, and he wanted to be at you know the front of the battle and find out how he could help. And um, so I had learned this is, a lot this is the, about that. This, this is the night minister. The the your project. Yeah. The night minister? Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. It is. No, that. Yeah. Yeah. I cannot wait for that. That looks absolutely fascinating. It really is. It really is. And it was an entree for me into the history of San Francisco and um, and the sexual community, period. It was fascinating um, interviewing uh, Don Francis because he came to uh, the film subject, uh, a Methodist minister who opened a postgraduate 
Institute for the Study of Human Sexuality. And, um, and he came to them to help, to get the help from the minister and his students on creating a prevention program. When he first came out here, he said, you know, we've got to, we've got to reach out to the community, the LGBTQ community, and we don't know how to do that. So he got help from this minister and the students at the school, and they were taking condoms into bathhouses, you know, early on before the, the bathhouses were closed. They were um, reaching out to the community, teaching them about safe sex. As a matter of fact, my minister um, wrote a book on safe sex uh, before that was the thing to do, you know, in like 1983. And so um, I, had, I had a lot of knowledge about what happened in San Francisco um, in regards to um, the AIDS epidemic. And um, that's what, what brought me to um, want to tell the activist story. You know, I don't know if, if you realized it, but we first made a short film called Verisphere, A Love Story in Costume in yep. 2017. And it was about Michael and David's um, performance troupe in, in Pride, the costume troupe that they created. And once I got going, I realized, wow, you know, these guys were, were really involved. You know, they were really involved in the Names Project. David was involved in ACT UP in New York before he came to San Francisco. And having, you know, learned about this era, um, I was immediately hooked with wanting to tell their their bigger story. That's where the, yeah. the feature film came from. And and I, I think it should be pointed out that the the film Verisphere, which is a short film, um, even though you're covering the same subject, you used absolutely none of the footage from that film in making your new film, even though you're covering the same same people. Boy, you've done your homework. I love that. And yes, you're I absolutely right. Know. And my crew, <laughs> my crew hated me for that. I was like, you know, we can't use anything from the short film for the feature. And they're like, oh, come on. There's such great stuff here. <laughs> and I'm like, well, we've got long interviews with everybody. We can use the same interview, just not the same sound bites and not the same footage. And so, yes, uh, they're, they're two completely different films. Yeah, and I, I love that, and I really love the, the culture that you brought out in, in both those films. Um, the, uh, and one thing that you pointed out um, that I've been careful about in terms of my thinking about your work and um, even for the discussion is it's very easy to um, call the art that David does drag um, because, obviously, Mrs. Vera is – he is in essentially drag as a woman or the female gender, but he's such a departure from that. And you have turned it more of a, a costume art than a drag art. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, the San Francisco drag counterculture, um, David's, representation of quote-unquote drag or costume culture and um, both the difference and similarities that you see in those. 
Um, sure, sure. I kind of call it science fiction drag or alien drag or, you know, yeah. <laughs> or performance art. You know, it, it, it's hard to yeah. – and. and you know, and they don't perform. That's the other thing. You know, they, you know, as, as they state in the film, you know, they, they like to be in the audience dressed up. You know, they don't want to be on stage. Uh, the only time they're on stage is at the Pride Parade each year and with their troupe that varies between 50 to 150. 2019, there were about 150 people that showed up from around the world who had marched in previous years. And... Um, you know, uh, San Francisco. San Francisco is a, a very interesting uh, place when it comes to drag. You know, drag hasn't necessarily been taken very seriously here in the vein of, um, you know, uh, the expression trying to to necessarily um, look the part of a different gender. Uh, you know, if you go back to the coquettes, you know, they most of them had beards and they were just sprinkling glitter in their beards in the early 1970s. And that's reflected in another film I made. But, um, uh, yeah, you know, I think David and Michael both were inspired by the 1980s uh, counterculture drag um, movement that was going on here. Uh, Australian Doris Fish was a big fixture in San Francisco, and if you if you know the Cockheads' history, you know Divine was a part of the group, as was um, Sylvester was part of the Cockheads, and so you know this this kind of stepping outside the the gender box of drag in San Francisco has always been um, you know evident in in the art form. And David and Michael just took it a step further, you know, and I don't know how much further. I mean, if you've seen the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, you know, in San Francisco, they're they're pretty radical. But, you know, they they kind of have a theme, kind of a, a um, quasi-religious drag theme uh, with their habits. And so, you know, there were all these different expressions going on, and... I, I, I really believe that they pulled their their recollections, their memories, uh, when they started costuming and photographing uh, David as Mrs. Vera. And uh, a lot of times the background was just as important in their photography as the costume itself. One of the – David's ex in the film – says it, it seems as if David is, you know, kind of wearing his art now. He's become his art, but wearing it um, on his body rather than painting it on a canvas. And and it was really colorful, erratic, um, dark uh, expressions. And one of the things I loved about Michael's photography was the fact that he would put David on um, – against murals often in San Francisco. And the murals would disappear a few days later. You know, they'd be painted over. So they actually, you know, captured their little time capsules of, of art on art, you know, street art in San Francisco, uh, things that just, you know, were here today and gone tomorrow. And they mm. would use those as backdrops for the photographs. So, 
you know, there's there's kind of a lot going on in these photographs. Yeah, it's and I think that's one of the things that I loved about your film so much was that I mean, you watch the film and it's very warm and loving, and you're in the middle of a love story um, throughout the film, um, and there are lots of fascinating nuances to their love story. And then there's the art overlay, which, you know, you're capturing. It's almost like you've got to treasure this film because it is an encapsulation of things that you're never going to see again. It's like you've, you've memorialized them. Um, and the there, you guys have made comments in the past about David's art that um, it's like it's um, this fanciful, outlay on the outside covering an inner darkness and you know given what was going on and you know the kind of creating fanciful things during the AIDS crisis is completely understandable why that expression would be there Um, but also you talk about how when he was doing paintings that he would paint pictures and then he would paint over the same picture and paint over that picture again so that and he de, he's described it as that that he doesn't start stop his art until it has become mysterious to him and what was what was your yeah. as you were filming this and interacting with him what was your observation of of him creating art yeah, David's yeah a true artist. Yeah, if you've known artists, and I think we all have, you know, they're their own creatures. And um, David is definitely um, an eccentric in that way, in the way he thinks and sees things. And I love that you brought that up. Um, in a, in a recent interview, somebody asked about his artwork, and and he mentioned he said, well, as soon as I don't understand it, then I know it's finished. And um, yeah. You, you get that you get that sense with his art and especially the costuming because the costuming is so in your face. I love the fact that they take anything and and add it to the costume. You know, whether it be a box of popcorn or a birdcage or you know um, packing pieces from IKEA or you know egg cartons you know, and straws and spoons. And it's it's mostly recyclable art, um, the way they, they create the costumes. And much of it's found on the streets. If you saw the part where Michael found the, the kids' tents on the streets and, um, <laughs> right. and, and he was able to fold them up and take them on to Bart with him, you know, he says, oh, it's perfect. You know, you can just carry your costume and then pop it open and put it on. And uh, yeah, it, it it is kind of uh, the the uh, epitome of street art. You know, many of the items are are found in the street, and then they they turn it into beauty. Yeah, is one thing you capture in the film that I think I kind of think has gotten lost in in drag um, the way it's being done now, and it's you know it's. You know, we have obviously we, per our news today, you know, drag is under, under the gun and and under fire from the right wing and all that. Um, but a lot of drag, you know, and and RuPaul has certainly laid claim to, 
infusing drag into the the broader popular culture. Um, but in, in sure. doing so, there's a lot of elegant drag and and you know um, you know women that are just absolutely stunning in drag. But the camp aspect to it is kind of the the part I remember from back in the day. And you capture that. There's a part of the film where they had made a film themselves making fun of a melodramatic film called The Baby. And they did their version Mm -hmm. of The Baby. And you included that in the film. And it was hilarious. Um, Talk about that. How did that get out of the film? And yeah, you know, they they just told me about it one time, and then uh, I think Michael uh, sent me the trailer that he made, that they all made, that the group made, and um, and I immediately knew, being a pop culture freak that I am, you know, which is what I really um, what I really related to the first time I met them. You know, their places, their their two apartments are just treasure troves of past pop culture. And so, you know, just the fact that I love the fact that this group of, you know, artistic people got together and made a trailer. And so I watched it and I said, oh, my God, that's got to get into the film. And I've got a much younger crew. My crew is, you know, two other people, two young guys, and they're heterosexual, and they just love making my queer films with me. They're they're wonderful <laughs> But they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to do the threes company bit. They didn't want to do because it's not their culture. They don't. They don't remember. They don't appreciate. You know, seventies thriller exploitation films like The Baby. They don't remember the television show Three's Company. So I had to really fight for that. They were like, you know, if we're going to cut anything, we're going to cut The Baby, or we're going to cut the Three's. Oh. No, 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 no. I'm like, the, the no. audience is going to love this. And yeah, um, no. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. No. so the baby stayed. I had to put my foot down, and um, yeah, I, I I just love I love that a group of adults, you know, artistic adults, you know, wanted to get into costume and match frame by frame this trailer for this, you know, they call it a, a, a gothic horror film in the early 1970s, the baby. And uh, they all got together uh, in like two days and shot it. You know, um, they just matched the trailer perfect. And you know, I, I'm dogging on my crew, but the, I think my editor did a beautiful job doing the split screen. Um, my co-producer editor Nick, he did a, a great job doing the split screen of the original trailer and then David and Michael's version. Oh, it, it, totally. I mean, and they nailed it. I mean, it was so uh, because the <laughs> no. the and, and this is what what I mean. This was reminiscent for me of of like the the whole camp art form, you know, with that drag used to embrace even more because it's gotten kind of nasty. I mean, where it's like you know the shade and the tea and all this stuff. And in back in the day, it was more camp making fun of you know these over melodramatic. Um, films and and that type of stuff, but that trailer, they 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 it was pure melodrama, and they totally oh yeah nailed it in their representation. It was awesome. 
I kind of yeah. want to go to the, the three company thing because one thing, and I don't know that this was at all intended in the film, probably me overthinking it, um, but I'll bounce it off you anyway. Um, one thing that I was absolutely fascinated by was, and it, you don't go into this in the film at all, but their relationship as long-term partners. Now, they, when they got together, they didn't make long-term plans of, you know, white picket fences and riding off into the sunset and all that because neither one of them knew that they were going to live very long. And their uh, relationship has evolved over, you know, 25 years plus. Um, but I was fascinated with their, juxtaposing their relationship as this wonderful long-term partnership versus the traditional heteronormative marriage where two people come together and create a household together and compromise their individuality to stay together as a couple, oftentimes breaking long down the road because somebody has to go, quote, unquote, find themselves. And here you have this wonderful relationship where they each have their own space, they're not just their own bedroom, their own apartment that parallels out to them being together. And they're kind of exemplifying the ideal partnership of where somebody doesn't give up their individuality. They are themselves, and yet they're in a love relationship and a partnership. Um, and I just found that example that they represent fascinating. Um, what were your feelings on that, observing them, and or am I overthinking it? No, 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 no. I love everything that you're saying and 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 how you were struck by that because you know we don't have to do you know as as LGBTQ folks we do not have to have to you know um, mirror any kind of community you know we're we're open to creating our own relationships however they work best you know we don't have to emulate our parents we don't have to you know live like the the folks next door and you know i've i've always felt that way about um you know gay male relationships specifically because that's all i can speak for really in my own experience mm -hmm. and i've always loved watching how people you know um had separate homes or lived apart and and worked separately but had this relationship or in david and michael's case you know side by side places and I think what that speaks to is that they are they are both artists in their own right and on their own terms, you know. And you know, if if we really want to get down to it, you know, they both had so much stuff, you know, that they weren't willing to get rid of and they weren't willing to compromise on. That you know, when an apartment came up, um, David moved into it <clears throat> several years ago, but Michael's been living in the same apartment since since the early 80s and um, <clears throat> it was just kind of perfect when when the next door apartment um, came available and yeah that's that's what works for them and they're very different they're very different people but they're you know completely devoted to each other and to each other's art 
You know, in the film, David says his favorite part of the 25-year um, exhibit they had at Harvey Milk is Michael's art, you know, of taking the photograph. That's, right. that's David's right. favorite. Yeah. And David's a, yeah. an artist. And so, you know, they appreciate each other. They support each other. And I think we, we show that really well in the COVID period. You know, Michael got excited with the fact that, oh, well, I can do this stuff that I never had time to do. And David went a little stir crazy. And um, yeah. and they were great support to each other. I was on the phone with them a lot. A um, couple of times I drove by and waved, you know, from from the windows up there. We, we all waved. And one of the things I loved was the the um, the creative expressions that people had during COVID. I want to give a shout out to to their neighbor right across the hall, and that's Peaches Christ, Joshua Grinnell, and a group of drag performers, including um, Hecklina, who's no longer with us, um, mm-hmm. would deliver people's food and then perform drag out in the street so people could look out their window and see a drag show in the street. Because the streets were empty in COVID, as we all remember. Right. And, um, yeah, but they do support each other 100%, and um, and they're both on board for, you know, what the other one is doing next. And they're always doing something, and it's interesting, and they don't talk about it, but if you go visit them, you see the new art that's being created all the time. It's, really, it's, it's yeah, amazing. I mean, I, I'm the, such a fan. The, yeah, the integration of their talents and their their just you know unabashed support of each other does does definitely come through. But it, and the thing, the going back to the magic of your film was I think it makes us at least it did for me think about things. You know, it's like because that that relationship they have. I thought about my parents who were they they both passed away now, but they were married. 60 some years and, you know, beautiful home and all that. And seeing that, I kind of was reflecting on that going, you know what, but it was my mom's home. She, everything in there was her, her. It was like my dad was, was the resident with her and, you know, he contributed to the relationship. But I think that's why straight people have found same-sex marriage so threatening was because without, the delineation of where they have these gender roles and why they're so threatened with, you know, transgender people and everything else is gender heterosexual people have to have those roles because they don't know who they are. If those roles aren't predefined for them, that they just plug in and don't ask any questions and just be those people. So I just, without preaching it, without even talking about it, I just found it wonderful how your film made that evident by example. And uh, it just was, was like, just truly wonderful that way. Um, Robert, I want to pivot a little bit. Where can people see the film? How do they get access to it? Well, it is for rent or purchase on Apple TV. Um, we are a Gravitas Ventures production, uh, or they're our distributor. And um, it can also get it on iTunes. And I think it's on, like, every cable, TVOD, you know, Xfinity, On Demand, all those, all those um, 
streaming services, uh, you can find our film. Uh, we do not get placed on a major streaming service like a Hulu or a Netflix or a Prime as part of their catalog in the first month or two. But hopefully we'll land in one of those places and we'll be able to uh, shout out about that. But that's that's normal in all distribution. That, right. um, um, But it is international. And they just turned on – that's literally the language they use um, – the UK and Australia, and so it was. A, it was a couple of days late, and we had a review from the Guardian in the UK, and <laughs> people couldn't get it right away. But it it should oh. be up and streaming um, in the UK and Australia. And then I just before this interview um, gave them the go ahead to um, to stream and make the film available in any English speaking territory in the world so um it's out there you can find it you can rent it on on prime you can rent it on apple tv it's pretty pretty reasonable right now i think you know 3.99 or 4.99 to rent the film and uh hopefully you know it'll be on one of the, the big streaming services um as we move forward it's awesome and highly highly recommended um, you know, it, it, it covers so much, it, you know, their, their art is fascinating. Their relationship is so heartwarming. It is really, um, a very unique love story and you have to watch that. Um, and their recollections of both the ACT UP and NAMES project, um, you know, th- those were very moving. Um, just, just having that recounted. Um, yeah, Robert, briefly, I want, I want to touch on, because, you know, you, you didn't just fall out of the box doing this film. Um, some of your other films are, are pretty fascinating as well. I'm looking, what is the prospect on The Night Minister? When do you think that will be completed or, or available? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've been trotting this story out for a long time, and I spent, you know, years and years and years documenting the story to the point where the Institute itself, after 40 years, closed just because um, my Methodist minister, who's passed away, and and his wife, who ran the school, um, just had to close it because they were too old, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, and they'd lost accreditation because the state boards were so so difficult and things like that. But I've, I've, I've got a great group of um, production people helping me with it. And it's gone anywhere from a series of 10 parts to a series of five, four, three. And it looks like we're going to shoot for a limited series of three parts. And I've got a British uh, production company that's interested in launching it. And we may very well launch on BBC first. And then hopefully license to the you know, HBOs and Primes and Hulus and Netflixes of the world after BBC, you know, runs it. That's a possibility. We're also looking at possibly just making it a um, a documentary film. So um, it's looking for money. It's building your team. For an independent filmmaker, it is, it is a long journey often. Um, I'm glad that this film has kind of got my name out there with with positive reviews because it really is, unfortunately, in the film world, who you know and who you are and who recognizes your name. 
because oftentimes I've had people say, yeah, we want to make the film, but we want a known director. And I have never buckled down to that. I did have a very, very notable filmmaker that wanted to make it. And I said, I would do it if we co-directed and they, they wouldn't have that. And so I, mm. I didn't do that. And so I've, I've kind of stuck to my guns. It's a, it's a timeless story. It's fascinating. And just so you know, we've got footage that nobody has ever seen that includes Gore Vidal, William Masters and Masters and Johnson, Allen Ginsberg, the list goes on. Um, it's, it's, something else. I was able to obtain the full archive from this Sexuality Institute, and um, I got some treasures that are coming your way when we can when we can make it happen. And I've got a very notable sexologist to narrate, and um, it's, it's a rollicking journey that is slightly under the radar, but, you know, it encompasses history like nobody's business. It's got Harvey Milk is a part of it. The Reverend Jim Jones is a part of it. Both San Francisco stories and both San Francisco tragedies within 11 days of each other. Um, mm. it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And it, it goes to China. And uh, it's, it's something else. So I can't wait to, yeah, to I, show it I to the I can't world. wait. That, yeah, it's, it sounds absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's like just the, the, the brief uh, – uh, trailer that you had on it was like this looks like like Stonewall level history stuff that uh, you know need, needs to get out there. Especially as we have heard, Republican politicians are trying to clamp down on us talking about history at all. And unfortunately, Robert, today we are out of time. So I want to thank you so much for first of all. Being who you are, I want to thank you for your work. Um, there are other films that uh, Robert has done, uh, Library of Dust and Ruminations, both of which look equally fascinating in their own ways um, that we didn't get to talk to you about today. Um, but uh, And I want to point them to your website, newrealityproductions.com, and that's new with an N-U. Um, so yep. check that out. Um, and best of luck on the film. We are, like I said, out of time this week, so I hope everybody tunes in next week. Tell your friends. They can subscribe to us on any of the podcast platforms. We are there. Also, read the Los Angeles Blade at losangelesblade.com. We will be back again next week with a super fascinating show, I promise. Tune in, and we will talk to you then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio!